to another edition of The Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you today with, once again, a beautiful, beautiful episode. Um, no football, unfortunately, this week because things are popping in the MLB and the NBA. we got to take an eagle eye to both of them. Week 10 is going nowhere. Um, nothing to see here, folks. So, Sam, with that said, talk us through the many, many wonderful things that we have to talk about today in the National Basketball Association and in Major League Baseball. So we're going to start just by running through a bunch of trades that have happened in the last couple of days in the NBA. We've been bombarded with wash bombs on Twitter. Uh, we're going to, we're going to take you through the implications of all of them, what we think of the trades, And then tomorrow night is the 2021 NBA draft. So we're going to give you guys some information on the top 10 prospects or so, you know, what you should, what you should be looking for as to, as to, as to these players, what might happen on draft night. And then we're going to get into Major League Baseball, you know. Major League Baseball free agency is just starting to get in, in full swing. We're going to talk about, you know, some interesting free agency cases where we think some of the top guys are going to go. And finally, the 2021 Hall of Fame ballot is out. And we are going to both give you our ballots if we were Hall of Fame voters. We're going to let you know who we think should be going to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And with that, let's just jump into the NBA, Aaron. All right. Well, before we do, let me just say that uh, while we are not actually Hall of Fame voters in the MLB, one of us is getting much closer to that position. Sam has tracked down a Twitter lead on a Mets job, and I want everybody to send this guy some positive vibes, some positive wishes. A dream job would be working for the hometown club, figuring out how to make him better. So let's all give Sam some positive wishes for his Steve Cohen future encounter. But with that, I can finally acquiesce into the NBA. So, Sam, let's start this all off by talking about, to me, the absolute craziest, craziest move that has been made in the last couple of days. The Milwaukee Bucks moved Drew Holiday. Now, Well, they got him. Sorry, yes. The Milwaukee Bucks acquired Drew Holiday. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how could the biggest, craziest move so far star drew holiday well it's not about what the bucks got it's about what the bucks lost so to new orleans where drew holiday was playing the milwaukee bucks send eric bledsoe a point guard of slightly lesser but comparable skill and experience george hill a consummate winner and mainstay like championship run piece who played with LeBron on the Cavs for a spell. Their 2020 first rounder, 2024 first round swap rights, which means that if the Pelicans like the Bucks slot more, they can swap their picks. 2025 first rounder unprotected, 2026 swap rights and an unprotected 2027 first right. So count that. That is five first round picks and two accomplished players. Two accomplished everyday NBA players on the return for Drew Holiday and this year's 60th overall second round pick. What's going on here, Sam? Please talk me off this ledge. Yeah, okay. It it seems like an awful lot. I mean, we're talking about basically what Oklahoma City got for Paul George last year. Um, debatably, now, debatably more. Yeah, okay. So, well, it's... They got, you know, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who is, you know, a 
at the really time, good time it did not look like that yeah i mean I, I think a lot of people were high on him but yeah he was probably better this year than than even anyone expected now i i don't agree with your characterization of like eric bledsoe and george hill is like close to drew holiday level players like drew holiday is like maybe the best like guard defender in the league like elite elite defender and a good offensive piece to put around Giannis. Now, I agree it seems crazy to give up this many picks for him, but if we're trying to understand the Bucks thinking, here's how I might explain it. Hold on, let me just say really quick, Drew Holiday and Eric Bledsoe, you're correct. Eric Bledsoe is is far and away the better defender. Or sorry, Drew Holiday is far and away the better defender of Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe is sometimes a dog on the floor and he's not playing defense or running or playing offense. But as far as the numbers go, they have comparable points per minute. They have comparable three-point percentage. They have comparable field goal percentage. They have comparable free throw percentage. And they have comparable counting stats per on a per-minute basis. Uh, they're, we're they're also not now that different. We're also now three years running of Eric Bledsoe just becoming unplayable in the playoffs. And, you know, maybe you say, like, okay, maybe say, okay, like, that's just bad luck. But, like, maybe the Bucks really do, like, as an organization, feel like that's a thing. They feel like we can't trust him when the playoffs, when the playoffs come around. And, like, if you're a team where you have Giannis, then it's, like, it's about the playoffs. It's just, like, all right, we've, we've busted out in the playoffs the last two years. We need to change something about this team to break through. And I think that is the clear sort of defense of the Bucks here, which is that they don't view this as a trade for Drew Holiday. They view this as a trade to keep Giannis because if something doesn't change, then Giannis could be out of here. And if now you start thinking, you know, in the Bucks' mind, well, we're not really giving, you know, three first-round picks, two unprotected, two swap rights to the Pelicans, for Drew Holiday in a vacuum, we're giving it to him for a good piece to pair with Giannis in this window. And if you view it as we're trading to keep Giannis, then you start to maybe give some defense for, for giving up all of that. Okay, well, I appreciate you playing devil's advocate, Sam, but you know as well as I that that's absurd because I'm not saying that they didn't need to go do something. I'm saying that they got totally destroyed in this trade. If the trade was Drew Holiday for Eric Bledsoe and George Hill, I would have said that the Bucks got a little bit better value. A little bit better value. Not substantial. It would not be a ripoff. Now when you throw in five first-rounders, effectively, for a 2022nd rounder, it's so bad they should have been able to get this deal done with just their this year first rounder that should have been well but that it's embarrassing it's embarrassing it's a terrible terrible job i i will note like this year's first rounder is sort of a late pick in a bad draft it's like 24 uh and then like the the rest of the first round nba draft pick yeah i mean like the thing is okay I mean, I, I also think it's a lot, but I guess I understand where the Bucks' headspace is. And before, before we keep going, let's also note that the Bucks make an additional move, which is that they, uh, they did a sign-in trade with, with the Kings 
where they got Bogdan Bogdanovich, who I think is an excellent young player, you know, a, a good wing, good shooter. Yeah. Uh, and they, they gave up Dante DiVincenzo and, and Ersan Ilyasova, who are, who are, you know, Ilyasova at least is a serviceable player in their rotation. Well, and uh, DiVincenzo did some things for them last year. Never forget his great run with Villanova. He was super fun to watch. But yeah. I do like this for them because, to me, it really is effectively Bogdan Bogdanovich replacing Ersan Ilyasova, who – was good for them, but it's a new look. They're going to stop packing the floor with a bunch of big guys. They're going to put some shooters around Giannis and see what he can do, hopefully. Um, although Drew Holiday is not the archetype for that, I want to point out. Um, and I, I like this one for them, and the trade is is relatively even. You know, you might be able to parse out who got a little bit better value or what, but I appreciate you playing devil's advocate once again, Sam, but I'll never get over that. That's the uh, worst yeah. trade that I, I can remember. It, I, I definitely, I definitely like was taken aback when I saw how much it was. And I still like, I still think it's kind of crazy. And I don't see how they needed to give this much up for Drew mm -hmm. Holiday. So all I will say is that I, I think, I think Drew Holiday has like a big of a higher reputation among the league, among teams who really care about like a winning piece than you're giving him credit for. It's the only thing that, that, that I want to say. Like, I think, I think okay. people around the league, like, really, they really think Drew Holiday is, like, an incredible piece on a winning team because of his defense, his ability to play, like, complementary offensive mm -hmm. basketball. So, like, I, if the Bucs see him that. as, like, a really, like, good fit with Giannis, uh, then, like, I see why they're being aggressive about it. I think it's too much. But you know what? Maybe Giannis had a conversation with them this offseason and – really put you know the fear of god in them that he wasn't that he was going to leave right you know maybe that happened and and maybe they panic and think we really need to do everything possible to keep you on right yeah that's fair but, um and we'll yeah. ha we'll have to see how it goes but let's move on from last year's odds on favor to win the east to last year's champions from the west and eventual title champions the uh, los angeles lakers this was an interesting trade the lakers trade danny green and uh this year's first round pick again a late pick in a bad draft so to your point Sam, um for dennis schroeder dennis schroeder is a good on ball defender um he's a bit of a pest and he appears to be Rajon Rondo's heir apparent with Rajon Rondo having his eyes focused on the other team in Los Angeles. Um, to me, I saw mixed reactions on this trade from my friends in LA and on Twitter. Um, I don't think it does much, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure it warranted the first round pick. It, it makes them younger, which is good. It gives them more energy. Danny Green certainly did not play very well last year. Um, it's okay. I don't know how much it improves. I think they need to do some other things to make this make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think Schroeder is probably a, an improvement over Rondo. He had like a pretty decent right. season as as the backup point guard for for the uh, for the Thunder. I'll note, like, sort of as a corollary, like, this was the 28th pick in, in the first round this year. Uh, the Knicks got the 29th pick from, from the Clippers for a half season with Marcus Morris this year. Of course, you know, that, you know, that they viewed him as, like, sort of a good, you know, third, fourth, right. fifth piece in the starting lineup. So when you're in that narrow championship window, I guess that's, that's what you're willing to part with for, for these picks. Uh, 
So if the Lakers view Schroeder as their starting point guard next year, then I think it's worth the pick. Uh, you know, Danny Green was also, you know, he's not nothing. You gave him away. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's generally a, it's not, a, it's not a, a move that's moving the needle that much as to like what I think about the Lakers prospects next year. Right. So staying out West, we see a swap between the Trailblazers and the Rockets. The Trailblazers acquire Robert Covington, which is very interesting, a guy I like a lot. And the Rockets get Ariza, this year's first rounder, which is pick 16. So that's that's a much nicer pick than 28-26 uh, in a short draft like this. Um, and 2021 protected first round pick. So um, for me, this looks like the Blazers saying, we got to go in and win it right now. They see Dame as the arguably one of the five most proven playoff players in the NBA despite never winning a uh, title or even co- going to the conference finals he still well, he has- went to the conference fi- he went to the conference finals two years ago it just oh like, right it never felt it never felt like he, it was a real conference it didn't matter because it was the Warriors yeah but yeah but a guy who nobody questions how he's going to play in the playoffs they see uh Yusuf Nurkic coming back and they're saying this this guy balls People sleep on him, but this guy balls. He is Nikola Jokic light. And they still have Beal. Or not Beal, I'm sorry. They still have... uh, McCollum. Yeah, McCollum. Why do I mix those guys up? They're like the same player. They still have McCollum, and now they got Covington at the wing. That is a very dangerous backcourt. That is a very dangerous backcourt. And the thing with the with the Rockets is they've often struggled to find like wing defense and wing shooting at the same time. Like mm-hmm. that's that's really been a, a hole on their team the last few years. And Covington definitely supplies that. Um, for the Rockets, I think it's a you, you pretty meant good for res- Portland. You meant Portland has missed that. What did I say? You said the Rockets, but I agree that. Oh, Portland oh yeah, has yeah, missed yeah. Por- the Rockets have yeah, had Portland it in PJ Tucker. Up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for, for the Rockets, it's the return of Trevor Rizzo, who I really think they missed a lot last year. Yeah, they did. Um, they did. But, I, you know, I, I think the trade makes sense for both sides. I think the Rockets are thrilled to get those first-round picks, especially uh, if they end up sort of choosing the path of a rebuild, which we'll talk about in a second. Right. But before we talk about that, I want to get your thoughts on the points God Chris Paul going to Phoenix. All right. Well, I was, I was pushing this off for last because this is so complicated for me. Um, so let's lay the ground, uh, the ground foundations here for this trade. The Phoenix Suns received Chris Paul and some guy named Abdel Nader, who I hadn't heard of until I was prepping for this, or Nader, who knows, until I was prepping for this um, show here. The Thunder in return get Kelly Oubre, Ricky Rubio, Ty Jerome, Jalen the Q, and a 2022 first-round pick. So right off the bat, the idea that the Suns, my Phoenix Suns, those little stars of mine, can go and get one of my all-time favorite players, if not my all-time favorite player. I just grew up loving this guy from the first moment he was a Hornet. Um, and I like he's the best. He's the point guard. He's truly the best pure point guard of our generation. And I include AI in that, who was a better basketball player, but not as good of a point guard. And I'll note, he is sort of like the generational 
you know, heir apparent to Steve Nash. That's true. That's very true. Because I was just about to say the only guy who comes close is Steve Nash, but he doesn't quite get it because Chris Paul legit plays defense and runs the floor. Um, But so this is great. And let me tell you why it's great. And then I'll tell you why it's not so great, but I'm going to lead with the good. And hopefully this is what you remember. So they have Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton for a few more years, but Phoenix has been since the D'Antoni, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, Sean Marion tenure, they've been in bad shape. Um, You know, they had that quick stint with Shaq. Um, They've ran around with a couple other guys, but they really have uh, struggled to make the playoffs. And when they've made the playoffs, they have really um, never advanced past the first round. So, they're looking at these young guys. D book is undoubtedly a top 20 player in the league, potentially a top 10 scorer in the league. Deandre Ayton is still raw, but has a lot, a lot of skill. He's not going to stretch the floor all the way back to the three point line, but he is going to shoot in the paint. He is going to shoot around the arc. Um, and he is going to, you know, he's going to control the glass when he's on. So the, he needs to be developed, but there's a lot of potential there to bring in Chris Paul and say, we, the owners of the Phoenix Suns, the Sarvers, who are historically horrendous owners and should have been kicked out of the NBA ownership group years ago, we're going to, pre- you know, we're going to pretend, in my opinion, but we're going to pretend like we want to win. So we're going to go spend a ton of money on a guy who is a, a, an all-around, a generational-type NBA talent. I think that bodes very, very well for the Suns, even though it hurts them by giving up a couple years of control of Uber and Rubio and the 2022 first round pick. I think that because the Suns' problem has not been having high draft picks. It's been building a winning culture and attracting talent. So to be able to do that here with a guy who is not Shaq-aged old publicity stunt um, I think is a big deal. I also think it's a big deal that he can mentor the parts of Devin Booker's game that need the most help. Protecting the ball, passing, and playing on ball top of the key defense. Um, so I think it's great from that perspective. Now, on the other end of the equation, Chris Paul is not young. Chris Paul is, you know, 34, 35 years old right now. And He's 35 right now. He has two years left on his contract. And those two years are coming at a greater cost than LeBron James. Now, we know he took the pay cut, but it's, it's upwards of $42 million um, for this guy over the next two years and per year. And that is, that's going to hurt them. Um, it's going to hurt their cap space. It's going to hurt their flexibility moving forward. And Chris Paul is not the player he once was. I mean, we have to admit that. He was very good last year, but it's been a couple of years since he was a dominant player on the floor. Um, and so it's a, it's a steep price. But me, as a Suns fan, from like a logical standpoint, I don't think it was a great deal from a money perspective. From a talent perspective, I think it was fine. From a money perspective, I think it hurts. But as a Suns fan, I think it was the right thing for him to do, and I'm glad that he did it. I didn't like it. Um, I think, you know, there's no doubt in my mind the 2021 Phoenix Suns, 2020-2021 Phoenix Suns will be a better basketball team than they would have been if they hadn't made the trade. Chris Paul had an absolutely fantastic season with the Thunder last year. But I'll also note he's 35, and two years ago with the Rockets, he looked like a 
sort of wash. So like we are going off of one year. Did he though? Of him. He he didn't look great. Maybe he would. Maybe he was playing a little injured. Maybe he wasn't totally engaged. Uh, but yeah, you know, he wasn't the same thing he was, you know, with the Rockets the year before when he had them within, you know, one game of right. the NBA Finals. Um, but you know, yeah, I still think he's a good player. I still think this Suns team is now in the position to to contend for a playoff spot in the West. Um, Sorry, I yeah, don't actually know what you're talking about, though. He scored three less points per game, but he was the same in all the counting stats, had basically the same three-point percentage, and he had 20, 20% lower on true field goal percentage. But he was not that not that off of 20. Um, 20 yeah, it may, what, 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 Wash was too strong, but you know he was still like a, a good – NBA point guard, but it was a down year like, for him. It was a down year for him. It's yeah, his career it, low in points per game. Yeah, it, it looked like he was he was starting a decline away from uh, you know a top five to ten NBA point. Guard. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wash was definitely too strong of a word. Um, but you know, Kelly Oubre Jr. is a good young player. The twenty twenty first round pick. I don't think it's protected, you know. I don't think so. And and one thing I'll note is that uh, we still don't know what year the NCAA is going to do away with the one and done, which means any year now yeah. we're going to have what 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 people in the NBA are sort of talking about is a double draft, which is basically you're going to get the top high school prospects from two years in a row in the same draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, teams are being very careful about giving up their 2022, 2023 first round picks because we don't know whether, you know, the 16th pick in the 2022 draft could really be like a top 10 pick in a normal year. Well, even even uh, if if the classes are deep, it could run through the 30s. Sometimes you have 15 picks in a class that are yeah. like pretty promising prospects. And, and I'll note that in general, people are, are very high on the 2021 draft where teams are sort of saying they value like pick you know, pick 10 in the 2021 draft almost more than they value the number one overall pick. this um, Because this year is sort of a weak draft class and we'll talk about that when we get to the draft. But basically, you know, I just don't think the team that, that the Suns have right now is good enough to warrant making a, a now versus future trade. Like, yeah, maybe they can compete for the eighth, seventh seed in the West. They're not going to compete like about going to a conference final going to a championship and at that point it's like okay maybe you want to give Devin Booker a taste of winning a taste of some meaningful playoff basketball if he's a guy you're going to want to build around but it's like this is just not something that like teams like smart organizations on the rebuild do yeah like, and and I, I agree it, it's with trigger that, happy but, but to to play your vocals back to you about the Bucks. I think the situation here is that if they didn't bring some someone in like this, then Booker was gone. And they don't have a future to build around if they lose Booker and Aiton. You know, so But but Booker Booker and Giannis are just like they they they're not the same conversation. Of course, of, of course, but if yeah. you but if you look at where the franchise is, they either have to say, "Look, we have this great talent. We have two 
arguably great talent. And we're just going to tank because we don't think they're the right guys to build around or they're going to try and build around them. And so that's why I say, I agree with you that it analytically is not the smartest thing to do, but I'm glad they did something. I'm glad they finally were like, fine, we'll give it a shot. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I, and I think as a, as a Phoenix Suns basketball fan, this is going to be the most fun you've had in a basketball season in, in maybe a decade. So 15 from years. that perspective, yeah. Oh no, 15 years. I was still some national. 12 years, 12 years. Yeah. 2008. yeah. Okay. So b- before we get to the NBA draft, there's one more sort of, I'll package this two things together that I want to talk about. And that's basically that there's trouble in Houston. Daryl Morey, you know, resigned. And now basically Houston's two star players reportedly want out. Westbrook wants a trade. I have my fingers crossed that, you know, no team such as the New York Knicks would possibly be stupid enough to give up uh, current or future assets to facilitate such a trade. Um, for who? But, for us? For Russ, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But Russ is gone. Somebody's going to give up way too much for him. Yeah, uh, but I mean, we, we've given our thoughts on, on Russell Westbrook before on the podcast. I don't think we need to go into too much detail. You know, he is not, he's not a star player. He's not still a star level player in this league. Yes, he is, but he's, it, he's not a championship cornerstone. Yeah, his, his efficiency as, as an offensive player is, is simply too disastrous to, to build a championship level team around him as a first or I think even second option. Uh, but more interestingly is that James Hargan wants out. And James Hargan has, you know, been, you know, one of the best players in basketball for since he came to the Rockets. You know, famously, he was, you know, stolen from OKC by Daryl Morey. Uh, you know, for the last six years, he's finished top three in MVP voting, including an MVP, uh, probably the best scorer in the league. And he has reportedly turned down a deal worth upwards of $50 million a year as a contract extension with the Rockets and wants to be traded specifically to the Brooklyn Nets. So let's talk about... That's a rumor, okay? Let's start... A, that's a rumor. It, yeah, it is a rumor. It's not official. But people... If he goes to the Brooklyn Nets, Sam, I don't care that it wasn't KD leaving this time. I will never regard a KD championship as legitimate because he bothers <laughs> me so much. And and the fact that he keeps getting these guys around him. Look, is he like the best player on the planet, arguably? Yes, he is. But I hate that he's always got to have a huge crew of and it's again, it's not his fault. This huge cognitive dissonance, I know, but it bothers me. I hate it. I don't want to watch them play together. And to be honest with you, I don't see how it would work. When they played together in Oklahoma City, James Harden was not James Harden. James Harden was, oh, I'm sixth man of the year and I have stubble on my face, James Harden. James Harden was not eating soup out of your mama's panties, James Harden. James Harden <laughs> now needs the ball. 24-7, he needs to score, he needs to handle, he needs to facilitate in, in like simplistic corner three shooting or give and go type ways. I don't see how Kevin gets enough touches and Harden gets enough touches, and that's before we get into the single most ball-happy player in the NBA, Kyrie Irving, who got more touches than LeBron playing with LeBron at his peak. So 
put those three guys together, two of whom are just already debatable clubhouse presences, and explain to me how they're going Wait, to win the championship. Which two are debatable? Kyrie and Kevin. Okay, yeah, because I mean, you know, some people might even say James is also debatable. So I, I yeah. personally have never seen anything reported about yeah. James Harden's clubhouse presence that has made me think that he would be a bad teammate in any way. Whereas I, that, I agree, yeah. The opposite is true about Kyrie and Kevin. They both have super sketchy things that have been reported about themselves as teammates. Look, would it be fun as heck? Yes. Would they be perhaps the most dynamic on-ball team in the history of the NBA? Yes. But how? Yeah. How? I think I think they're instant title favorites if it happens. But the question is, what exactly does Brooklyn have to get this done? They have Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, a few. Spencer Dinwiddie, famous Bitcoin proponent, by the way. So if you love Bitcoin, you love Spencer really? Dinwiddie. Yeah. Tried to get his contract in Bitcoin this last year. I did not know that, actually. But basically, you know, I'm not sure Brooklyn has what it takes to get it done. I don't really see Houston's incentive to trade Hargan because if they do, it's entering a full rebuild. And they've given up so many of their future picks in in their win-now mode when they had Hargan that it doesn't really make sense to enter that full rebuild without a stash of picks to go forward. So I think Houston should hold on, on to him, even if he's sort of unhappy um, and try to, because like he's 31, he's still maybe the best offensive player in the league. He's still someone worth building around, like who you can maybe get to a championship level with. I think Houston's got to try to make him happy. Um, so, you know, I, that I, I agree, Sam. I think yeah. like to me, I get that maybe he said he wants to be traded, but if they keep him and continue doing what they did with Robert Covington, like kind of a, a Giants model from the MLB, building up their farm system while never totally tanking, I think that's the best thing they can do because we've said it many times. It's not the same in the NBA playoffs. Like as a franchise, you don't want to roll the dice like you want to do in the MLB playoffs. If you have a chance to make the MLB playoffs, you always want to do it because it's so random that you can win the World Series every time. It's worth that risk. The NBA is not like that. It's so much lower variance. Um, That's not the best strategy as a franchise. However, with a guy like Harden, who is so dominant, I think that maybe that changes the equation just a little bit not enough to make a huge difference but just a little bit but then when you factor that in with what they've already given up in the position that they're at unless they want to be bottom dwellers for three to four years right now and they're ready to take that hit as a franchise i i think they have to keep hard i think it's a business decision and they have to keep yeah i i totally agree and uh you know, we'll definitely keep you guys updated on all the future craziness that goes on with the NBA because if there's one league that is always going to have craziness in terms of players changing teams, crazy trades, people wanting out, it is the NBA. But with that, let's bring you to some future NBA stars. Let's talk about the 2021 NBA draft. And before we get – sorry, the 2020 NBA draft. And before we, you know – talk about some of these players let's just note that this is considered to be one of the weakest drafts in recent memory uh and 
a lot of drafts you have something like a surefire guy who's gonna go number one, you know, a la Zion Williamson last year. This is sort of the opposite of that sort of draft where, you know, people think like any of like a top, you know, eight or nine players could possibly end up being the best player in this draft. Um, but with that, let's maybe talk about who is likely to go number one in the draft. And the Minnesota Timberwolves have themselves the number one pick. They are trying, you know, they're in the unique position of having the number one pick, but already really having a pretty good core. And having yeah, exactly. Collins and D'Angelo Russell, you know, two really good young players under 25. Uh, so they're going to be trying to add another uh, good young player around them. And at this point, it's really, I think, according to the betting odds of two-man race between LaMelo Ball uh, at minus 115 on DraftKings and Anthony Edwards at minus 106, You'll notice that since both of those uh, are minus, uh, DraftKings is taking you to absolute town on on the big on these bets. That's right. Um, That's right. And (laughs) don't forget, folks, over-unders and spreads are where they are taking the most money from you. But then, uh, you know, one guy who's maybe still outside shot and play is also James Weissman at plus 900. Let's let's talk about these three guys because they're very likely to be the top three draft picks in the draft. I think in whatever order. Um, So let's start with Lamelo. You know, obviously the biggest name out of these three. He's been in the public spotlight for years since his psycho dad sort of forced him out of playing normal high school ball. Delusional father. Yeah, Uh, and and made him basically go be a professional around the world in Australia in like. Latvia. Latvia he, don't yeah. The first stop was Latvia with his brother Leangelo, who always reminds me of like an Italian ice cream. Why are why does everyone in his family have Italian names? That's something we never talk about. So he went to play in Latvia with Leangelo. He went to Australia, which actually has a, a decent basketball league. Um, here's the thing: Lamelo is five foot seven, I believe. Um, six foot seven. So yeah, yeah sorry, six, six foot, foot seven. A hundred and eighty-one pounds. If I blew on Lamelo hard enough, he would just tip over. A hundred and eighty-one pounds. He's a child. I cannot believe that he is the consensus number one pick right now, or odds-on favorite number one pick right now, because let's talk about what Lamelo is good at. Lamelo is coming into the league or coming into this draft regarded as a good playmaker, a good passer, um, but also elite, a, a, elite, elite know, playmaker passer. This no, is no, coming oh, out no, of. No, 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 no. I have a qualm with that. An elite passer, maybe, maybe. Let's see him pass on a team because last time I checked, for the last three years, he's been playing in foreign countries where he is not passing because he is the number one scorer on every one of those teams. So I'm confused where this narrative of elite passer comes from, but let's give him elite passer to say he is an elite playmaker in a way that is going to translate to the NBA where guys are not only large, like they are in Australia and Latvia, but athletic, quick, and physical, I think is laughable at 181 pounds. Explain to me how this man is going to get into the paint and create around the likes of Bam Adebayo, Nikola Jokic even, Dwight Howard, the way he's playing right now. 
he is a child and he will get manhandled in the NBA. Will he eventually be a good NBA player? Maybe. I personally don't think so, but I do think it's possible he gets on a weight training regimen and grows into his body and, and becomes a real player. But at his current build, 6'7", 181, he's not Kevin Durant. He can't do this. I, I am so out on this. The other two guys are much, much better picks in my opinion. I know you disagree, Sam, so go ahead and lay it on me. Well, you know, I'm I'm not an NBA scout, so like I, I don't know if I have like grounds to disagree. I you know, I just think, you know, yeah, he's he's small right now. He can tack on muscle. When like when you're the number one pick in a draft like this, I think you're trying to hit it big. So you're gonna try to look at the guy who can really turn into an incredible prospect. And if Lamelo already has this one elite skill, as in just like a savant passer, which is what people say, you know, I, I'm I'm inclined to trust the scouts on this one. Now there are worries, you know, there are some worries. Well, I think the main worry that you're sort of voicing is he's never really played basketball in a winning environment. He's sort of been a circus show his whole life. He's never played now, in a competitive I environment. I don't think Australia is as good as good D1 basketball. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. But he is playing with men as opposed to other kids. Oh, um, yeah, so, that's true. so like, you know, I I see those worries, and you know, should we hold him accountable for them? Like, no, but it doesn't matter. Uh, now the question is: Is the outside shot going to be there? Because I think that's a big question. And you know, he's not the type of guy who's like going to work all summer on getting the perfect form. He has a bit of a funky form, like his brother, but. A lot of the worries with Lonzo's shot uh, have persisted, uh, but Lonzo was never a good free throw shooter. Um, and Lamelo has been somewhat of a better free throw shooter. And this is often a thing that teams will sort of use as a proxy for if they think a guy can sort of develop an elite shot. That's if a great they, point. If good, That's a very good point. If they're a good free throw shooter, teams sort of see this as the guy has a level of touch, which is necessary to become an elite shooter. So maybe Touch and repeatability, can... repeatability yeah, exactly. being almost as important as natural feel for the basket. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I, I definitely see the worries about LaMelo, but from my, you know, from my understanding of, of how teams view prospects and, you know, I think the Tim, I think he's going to end up going number one. The other possibility is, is Anthony Edwards. Um, and Anthony Edwards is actually, you know, coming from a similar place to Lonzo in that he's an extremely, extremely talented scorer. Um, he showed this in college, you know, just has a ton of array of NBA level dribble moves, athleticism, can get a bucket. He's a he walking was the bucket. most exciting player in college last year. He was awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, people are worried about him for a similar reason in that he didn't really play for a winning program in college. He didn't really like play heavily on the competitive AAU circuit in high school. So he has also never played in like a real winning environment. Has he developed some bad tendencies? He hasn't looked great on defense. You know, his decision making in terms of shot selection has been really bad at certain, in certain college games. Maybe that's a product of the environments he's played in. Maybe you can fix that at the NBA level. But I think there are similar questions between LaMelo and Anthony Edwards in that they're these really good talents, but they have some questions about the environment that they've played in. Are they going to have winning habits when it comes to playing in the NBA? 
So this is interesting to me, Sam, because I think that, and I very, very rarely think this, you hear it mentioned maybe eight times as much as it should be on television and radio. I think this is an instance where the, the basketball makeup of Anthony Edwards, which we don't know what type of player he is, what type of teammate he is, what type of gym and locker room presence he is, will determine the type of player he is in the NBA. Because there's no doubt that he has the physical makeup and the skills and the athleticism to be a top-tier NBA guard. There's no, In my mind, there's no question about that, just watching him play last year. He's insane. He can do whatever he wants. The question is, what does he want to do? Does he want to be Eric Bledsoe, where he plays the game, you know, for money and enjoys it sometimes, but kind of hates it other times and never really gets himself on the court? Or does he want to go in and be kind of from all reports like a Zion Williamson and say, you know, how tell me how to make myself better, right? That's the difference between if this guy is going to be the real best player in this draft or whether he's going to be a role player in the NBA for a number of years. Um, So I'm interested to see what would happen. If I had to pick right now, though, I would go James Wiseman, who's the guy we're about to talk about, Anthony Edwards, and then LaMelo Ball. LaMelo Ball goes third for me. So let's talk about James Wiseman for a second. I'll tell you why I think that he's the number one player here. So James Wiseman is a big We've seen some trouble with bigs in the last couple of years. Like, uh, think, I don't know. Um, who's the guy? DeAndre from, Hayden. No, not DeAndre Hayden. Who's the guy from Duke? Uh, Marvin Bagley Jr. Um, but Or Wendell Carter, you mean? No, Wendell Carter's been okay. I mean Marvin Bagley. Ma- Marvin Bagley's been a better player than Wendell Carter, I think. But, mm. you know, either way. What, 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 Let me tell you what I think about James Wiseman. James Wiseman knows how to rebound, no question. He's a center. He knows how to rebound, no question. And we can talk about spreading the floor and small ball and all the great things that the NBA is is going towards. Rebounding is still an important skill in the NBA. He is fast and athletic enough that he can keep up with today's pace in the NBA. He is not refined in any area of his game. So he is not a refined defender. He's not great at protecting the rim despite being seven foot one, 240 pounds and extremely athletic. He is not a refined finisher. He does not have a very good shot. Um, And I don't think he'll really ever evolve into a consistent outside shooter, although he did huck up, uh, you know, three, three point attempts in college. But James Wiseman is a guy who I could see being a lot like DeAndre Ayton. I know you think that's a negative, but I think it's a positive. These are guys who have work to do, but I think are surefire rocks in the NBA. Are they going to be the best player on a team? No. So if you're looking for a cornerstone talent, a franchise talent, a generational talent, this maybe isn't your pick, but this is by far the highest floor to me. And for a team like the Timberwolves, who has a tremendous playmaker who also is great on the boards, this is a way to differentiate themselves from the league. They can still spread the floor. They can still shoot three-pointers. But they can go in and dominate the boards by 10, 15 boards every single game. This makes more sense to me than a guard that's going to go there and compete with D'Angelo Russell for touches, even though he sucks. 
And so I like Wiseman for the Timberwolves. That's who I would pick. But I know, again, I'm an outlier. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because the Warriors have the number two pick and the Warriors are ready to compete right away. They still have Steph Curry. They still have Klay Thompson. They still have Draymond Green. And I think likely we're going to see them take Wiseman because they're going to be able to just use an an athletic big is just going to be useful for a team like that. Uh, And maybe they could take some like even better like NBA ready talent that can help this team compete right now. But to do that, they'd probably have to stretch a, li- a little deeper in the draft. And because of that, we might see the Warriors end up trading out of the two spot. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked by like- that. In the position that they sit right now, they might – and let's actually talk about this next guy. They might do better with someone like Denis Abdaji, who is a Maccabi Tel Aviv player. He's nothing spectacular. Don't think he's coming over as the next Luka Doncic because for starters, he's already, you know – 20 years old which is much older than Luca was when he came in the league but you know he's got some room to grow but this is a guy who's pretty solid you know he's gonna play okay defense he's gonna be a pretty decent playmaker he's gonna play off ball he's six seven um but he's not super athletic because you know he's Israeli what are you gonna do um so (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I think that that's a good point. They could take someone like this who might be better next year, but James Wiseman legitimately gives them the possibility of having either a very good player in a couple of years, if they're able to stay competitive somehow as they lose clay or a good trade piece during their rebuild, which those are the only two options for them. They're either going to stay good and replace clay somehow or clay stays, or they're going to need to rebuild. And I think James Wiseman helps them in that regard more than uh, Denny does, even if Abdaji would be better for their playoff hopes next year, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I, a lot of people are linking Denny Abdaji to, to Chicago at four. But I think sort of – let's just go quickly through sort of the next four or five guys in the draft – and I think there's a lot of things up in the air. Like people view these prospects as all very close. We, they could see them going really in any order in like yeah. the top 10. So let's just like list off a few of them. One of them is Obi Toppin, who is really like the best college basketball player in the league at Diggin last year, but he's also on the older side. I think he's 21, 22. Yeah, there's not a good a history. Richard Jr., if I remember right. Yeah, so there's not a good history in the draft recently of, of taking players this old. Usually the, the real talent come out sort of after their freshman year, sophomore year of college, and, and the NBA player teams like to de- develop themselves. But if you watch Obi Toppin in college basketball this year, he was sort of no doubt the best player. And he maybe has the most complete offensive game in the draft, both as a big man that can step back and shoot the three that has a good array of post moves, that has good touch finishing around the basket. But I think people sort of see his sort of defense at the five as possibly a disaster, just not athletic to be the sort of rim protector mm-hmm. you need at the five position in the NBA. Maybe he can move to the four, but is he going to be like agile enough to defend the four? Who knows? So, you know, top in incredible offensive array of skills, but there's questions about his defense. Uh, but maybe the next guy that we have on our list is sort of the opposite of that. Uh, yeah, so Onyoke Akungwo, who played at... Who, who was LaMelo Ball's high school teammate? LaMelo Ball's high school teammate at Chino Hills and played at US, in USC. And let's be honest, okay, 
the Pac-12 is not a great basketball conference over the last few years, despite having a lot of success in the past. But, you know, he did go for 16 points a game, almost three blocks a game, two points, almost nine total rebounds. He didn't shoot the three at all, but he did score at almost a 62% clip, and he shot 72% from the line. So that's not bad. He's a guy who is really getting a lot of praise as a defender, getting a lot of comps to Bam Adebayo, who is a tremendous player. But it speaks to the how shallow this class is, right? Like, you're not in the first round by the fifth pick or sixth pick typically looking for Bam Adebayo comps, right? Like, you want still at five or six, don't forget, Luke and Trey went five and seven, right? Like, you want... Three, three and five. Sorry, three and five. But it's still down here. You want somebody who's generational. Um, but this year, that's not the case. So I like Okungu also as a guy who is going to... Um, impact immediately on the defensive end, and if he goes to the right team, could be developed. And, and is, I have seen, I I've seen certain draft guys talk about him as like a top two to three player in the in the draft in terms of their evaluation. So like, there are some people really high on him. Like, who knows? Maybe the Warriors see him as a good piece and actually end up picking. Well, I was just about to say that, Sam. I actually think that if they're going to reach for anybody, this is the guy. Because he is 6'9", he's not a true center, he's still plenty athletic, he's not going to shoot threes, but that's fine for them, right? They have four other guys who can space the floor, he's still fast enough to guard off ball, they love to switch, he's fast enough to guard off ball, he's going to protect the rim with those almost three blocks a game in the Pac-12 last year, and if they're going to reach for someone, this is the guy, to me at least. Um, but let's go through the last three guys that we have on this list that are interesting to me. So the next one is Isaac Okoro. He's uh, from Auburn. He's a 6'6", 225 small forward. So let's make a note that this is smaller than two guards we've already met in, Lamalo, in uh, LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards. Um, but this is a guy who didn't score a ton last year, but was a tremendous wing defender. He's a good finisher around the rim. He's not great beyond the arc, less than uh, – 29% last year. Um, his field goal percentage as a whole was only 515 almost. Um, so this is a guy who, again, is a NBA-ready defender. His offense leaves a lot to be desired. He's not a particularly good distributor. Um, he needs to be developed. Somebody needs to look at him and see him as a potential future scorer. But to me, this is a guy who I could see dropping out of the top 10, and I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see. I, I actually think uh, a, a lot of people like Okuro and, and, you know, you're constantly looking for people who could defend the wing, defend, you know, be versatile defenders. The best players the in the NBA are on the wing. If you can neutralize yeah. them, you have a great advantage. I, so so I, I do think that he's going to be a serviceable NBA player, even if he doesn't develop into a star. Um, the next guy I want to talk about is, is Tyree Tallibergen, uh, a point guard in Really great playmaker, passer, like really good vision. You know, if you watch him play, he looks like a veteran beyond his years. You know, really savvy with dribbling timing, you know, has all the moves. Uh, he has a really funky form, but he's actually a knockdown spot-up shooter. But because of the form, there's some worry about his shooting off the dribble. Is he going to be able to create three-pointers for, him, for himself? On the defensive end, not the most athletic, but it's a long wingspan, really high basketball IQ, so he is a good defender. Uh, so this is a guy who maybe doesn't have, like, real star potential, but looks like a guy who could be a really good, you know, starting point guard in this league. 
could be like a plug and play player from the start of his career because he's adept beyond his years. At the Knicks at the eighth spot, this is a guy that I would love to see them target. And yeah, he's someone I'm, I really like. Yeah, I actually love that for the Knicks. And I was going to say, I mentioned earlier that I think Wiseman has the highest floor in the top three, but I actually believe that uh, Halliburton has a higher floor than Wiseman. This is a guy who I agree with you is never going to come out on the floor and just wow you. No one's going to games in two or three years to watch Tyrese Halliburton. That said, I think he's got the surest chance of being a solid NBA contributor over the next five to 10 years because of everything you just said. He he improved both years he was in college. He has an unbelievable basketball IQ. It's evident from watching him. The Big 12 is a legitimate conference with plenty of good teams. And uh, he has developed a shot. He has developed a way to score. There's concerns about his shot, but I I just – you know, want to point out that between his two years in college, his shooting percentage actually went down the more he, uh, the less he played. He played fewer games his second year, um, but it stayed in the same range. He was better the first year, worse the second, I, but improved in every other aspect of the game. I, I don't see that as a red flag. I see that as a positive. Um, and yeah, I think that, again, it's not sexy. This is the type of guy who goes seven, eight, nine, 10 to 15 to great teams. Good teams, good franchises don't miss out on a pick like this. And you can't take him at one or two or three because you have to pick a franchise cornerstone there. But down here, eight, nine, 10, somebody has to get on this guy. Somebody has to see him fitting in their system and let him thrive because he's going to be a good contributor for somebody. Yeah, uh, I, I think he's a good player. Then the last guy I just want to quickly touch on is Killian Hayes. He's a French guard, uh, 18 years old, and he's really one of the more polarizing players in the draft. I've seen draft analysts such as Kevin O'Connor at the Rinker rank him as the single best draft prospect. Uh, this is related to the idea that he shows flashes of absolutely incredible playmaking. If you watch his tape, he has an array of, of moves that really remind you of, of, of James Harden, which is obviously a great offensive comparison. But I've also seen people rank him like as outside the top 10. And this relates to the fact that he's still an extremely raw prospect, turned the ball over a lot in the French League this past year. And turned the ball over really, more than 3.3 times a game. But Sam, it's not just that he's raw. He, he peaked career-wise in points this year at less than 13. The year before, he was 7.2. Uh, he is... You're correct. He is so polarizing. I think that, as with most things in life, the the true answer lies somewhere in the middle. He's not like Luca, who people looked at and they said, oh, well, his numbers are really good, but he's so young and he was playing in the EuroLeague. How can we trust that he's good? Which, reasonable critique. Luca, Luca was also playing in Spain, which is much better than the Prince. That's, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Um, but you know, Luca ended up being obviously a transcendent talent. Luca will be the best player in the NBA in two years, probably. Um, this is not him. However, it's also not Danilo, it's also not Darko Milicic, first pick of the 2000 or second pick of the 2003 draft after LeBron James. Um, this is a good player who has a lot of skills that fit into today's NBA. He has enough athleticism to play. He's a bit small. He's a bit undersized. 
um, at 6'4", 216. But he's going to be like Danilio Gallinari. That is the category that he fits into, in my opinion. He is going to be a reasonable NBA player. He's going to be a backup for a decent amount of time. He will have a career. Um, To say that he is not one of the 10 best players in this draft, I believe, is borderline hearsay. To say that he's the number one pick in this draft is mind-boggling, and and you're blinded by by Luka, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll see. I mean, I think he's the type of guy that will have, you know, a lot of uh, high variance in outcomes in his NBA career. Um, but we, we've gone on pretty long on the NBA, and we still have a lot of stuff we want to get to in the MLB. So let's just jump right into that. So the first bit of MLB news that I think we should just cover quickly is that Theo Epstein stepped down as the general manager of, of the Cubs today. Uh, sort of came out of the blue. People don't believe that it's with the intention of taking another job. Um, We don't know what the next step is for Theo Epstein, but uh, pretty surprising news. Yeah, I mean, there had been some chatter about it. I think you and I had even discussed it on the show already. But nobody thought it was coming this year. Um, And from all reports, uh, Jed Hoyer is stepping in to fill that position for him, a guy who has plenty of experience on the job, has worked under the tutelage of um, Theo Epstein for a while. Totally competent replacement. Um, But, you know, for Epstein, it's unclear what the reasoning was, but I continue to hear on Twitter and on MLB um, articles that when he left the Red Sox, everyone believed he did it for the right reasons. I don't know what that means to be honest, but everyone said he did it for the right reasons. And they're also saying that now. I don't know what those reasons are, but I do think that this is good for the Cubs because while Theo Epstein is one of the greatest general managers that we've ever watched work, the Cubs need something different. His formula for them, what he was doing, is not going to work again. It worked in 2016, and that's great but they want to win another world series. And he, I, maybe he saw it. I don't think this core can do it, which means they need some level of rebuild. I don't know how serious that is, but I think he saw that. He said, I'm, I'm not the guy to bring you through that rebuild. And his, his comments kind of alluded to that. He said, the decisions the Cubs are making this year have long-term impacts and the person leading them for the future should make those decisions. I think that's respectable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, Theo is obviously a legend for winning both in Boston and and, and ending two major droughts. Uh, um, and, you know, I think Cubs fans will have fond memories of him. I agree with you that the Cubs core, like, I still think the Cubs could compete for a playoff spot next year, but it really does feel like this Cubs core is coming a bit to, to an end. Um, Let's but, talk about... Oh, sorry. Do you have more Theo Epstein? No, I was going to move on. So, Let's talk about another GM hiring, which I think is just so exciting for everybody, um, but especially for Major League Baseball. The Marlins hire Kim Ang, the first general manager of any 
uh, major North American sport. She had previously served as the assistant director of baseball operations for the White Sox between 90 and 96 and the assistant general manager in New York from 98 to 2001 with the Yankees in 2002 to 2011 for the Dodgers. And she's been um, the vice president of baseball operations since 2012. So um, incredibly, incredibly qualified. And in fact, you know, this is maybe something that hopefully in a couple of years we don't even talk about. But this is the first woman to ever become a general manager. From all accounts of baseball insiders, this is the job that she very easily could have secured five, six, seven years ago and nobody would have batted an eye. Look at how much experience she has with great winning teams. Um, but, you know, the fact that she gets it now, I think, is just awesome. It's so important. And for the Marlins, who I heard Don Mattingly on the radio the other day, and I, I know I'm digressing a little bit, but I got to say this. I heard Don Mattingly on the radio the other day, and I've been talking so much crap about the Marlins. They were awful this year. They never deserved to be in the playoffs. We both shut them down. He comes on and he says, yeah, uh, we're not going to win next year unless uh, uh, our young players pitch and hit. To, to understand that that is what they have going on in their clubhouse, I was shocked. And to be honest, it made me think higher of them. Because I kind of thought they had Don Mattingly going out there because he manages like he's from 1955, right? Like he's crazy out there. But to hear him say, I know where we're at. Uh, we did well last year, but we're not going to get back there unless our young players really step up and play. And we're just going to have to see how they do. To me, says they have the right idea about what's going on in their franchise. And then to bring someone like Kim Ang in, who has helped build teams like the Yankees and Dodgers up, um, they could be dangerous in a few years still. I, I don't count them out there in South Florida. Yeah, it's it's obviously incredibly exciting news. And, you know, she's she's certainly, like, as qualified as it gets for a GM hire. And, you know, she's been up for a lot of jobs before. People, you know, people thought this was a long time coming. They really thought, like, she deserved to have a job many years before this. And, you know, she's she's an incredible, you know, icon in the world of baseball. Um, so I, I hope her, I, I wish her all the best luck and hopefully it leads to, to more, you know, female uh, minds rising the ranks in baseball organizations. And uh, all, and all of sports. There's plenty of great yeah, minds in all basketball sports, and football yeah. right now as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that covers the, the front office news. And now I think it's time to move to, to, to some free agency news. So before we move to some actual free agency signings, there there are two uh, qualifying offers that are that were accepted that are worth discussing. Uh, for those who don't know what the qualifying offer is, if you if you have a player on their you know at the end of their you know initial rookie arbitration contract, you have the option of offering them a qualifying offer, which is a one year offer at a certain amount of money. If they accept the offer, they're on your team another year. If they decline it, you get draft pick compensation if they sign another team. But it's important to note that the qualifying offer is set by the MLB at large. It's the same That's for right. every player who is being offered a qualifying offer. This year it was $18.9 million, and the club has a choice. You know, They can decide whether or not they want to offer a qualifying offer most of the time. Yeah, so this year I think six players were offered a qualifying offer. You know, a few of these players were obviously going to turn it down in in 
Trevor Bauer, George Springer, JT Romito, they can obviously get much bigger contracts on the open market. Although I'm surprised DJ LeMahieu turned it down. Let's talk about the last guy. I agree with the other three. DJ LeMahieu was undervalued when he came out of Colorado. Maybe he has that value now, but 19 mil a year is pretty high AAV. I'm kind of surprised he turned it down. But, you know, as an older guy, I think he probably wants to insure against maybe an injury next year, a down year, and get that longer-term contract. Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. And, and and honestly, he's coming off a year where, you know, two straight years where he was like, you know, top five in MVP yeah. voting. Yeah, you're he right. probably yeah. wants to cash, cash in two on years, that. Two years in a row, he's top three in MVP yeah. voting. Uh, so two guys who did accept it. Uh, first was Marcus Stroman with the Mets. This one was a bit up in the air. People didn't know where it was going to go. And Marcus Stroman, you know, in saying why he accepted it, uh, gave Steve Cohen as a big reason. He was really impressed by his opening press conference and said he was, like, really excited to play for the new Mets. Uh, this is obviously I think he also great. looked out at the other place he was looking. I think he definitely was looking at the south side of Chicago because he engaged with them a long time on Twitter, and I think he was really, really turned off by the Tony Larusa hiring. I'm not he, saying this he, to back our point up, but I think his Twitter activity makes it obvious that that was a big decision for him. I think he he openly said on Twitter he would not have played for him. Um, so this is obviously great news for the Mets. You know, Mark, you know, they had obviously a big hole in their starting rotation last year with Noah Syndergaard getting Tommy John surgery, Marcus Stroman opting out. So this is going to provide a good sort of three starter if he has, you know, if he gets good, maybe even a two starter uh, into their rotation behind Jacob deGrom. Uh, I also think it's a win for Marcus Stroman because, you know, he opted out of 2020. It's now been a full year since he pitched. And Stroman himself has really said he feels like this past offseason he turned the corner and really, you know, found another level. He wasn't able to show that in the 2020 season. So it makes sense that, you know, he hasn't pitched for a full season. He feels like he's about to have his best season ever. Makes sense to bet on yourself on this one-year contract, still make $19 million, and maybe make a lot more in free agency next year, especially with the depressed market due to COVID losses. And let me bring you back to earth for just a second. Stroman does not deserve $19 million this season. I agree that Stroman could be a very good pitcher, but I think if he went on the open market, Stroman would be looking at somewhere from a $9 to $11 million deal on a one-year For a basis. single... On a one year, yeah, I mean, uh, like his, his AAV would be lower for more years. That's how it works. Nine to Drew, Drew, Drew Smiley just got a one year, eleven million dollar contract with the Braves. Yeah, and I'll tell you how I feel about that in a second. But, <laughs> but I look Strowman. I like Strowman a lot, and I, I mean, want, the, the, I want to see him succeed, and I think he very well may succeed. But nineteen million dollars, both for him and Kevin Gossman, who we're going to talk about in a second. For them to both get that, I think is is crazy, and maybe I maybe I don't know what's about to hit me on the market. But with teams economically depressed and pitching at I don't want to say a premium, but plenty of pitching on the market, I'm surprised yeah. to see those two guys get it. I hope I hope he is good. I hope they have a one two three punch of Syndergaard, Degrom, and Stroman that absolutely dominates the NL East next year before losing to the D backs in the in the NLCS. But the, the, the going value no. for a win on the open market is, is $8 million. Like What? Since agency. when? Since, I mean, since 
since the last forever many years. I mean, no, it's, it's been eight, that eight level for a while. Eight million a win. It's like it, it was like six and a half in two thousand and sixteen or eighteen. No, it was six. It was six and a half like eight years ago. It, it's like it's it's gotten towards eight or nine in the last few years. And you know, with Strowman, we're talking about a guy who's been over a three war pitcher in three of the last four seasons. Like. I think he's a guy, if you're really talking about signing single-year contracts, could have commanded something like 25 to 30 mil. Sam, like obviously- Sam, Sam, no team paid more than $3 million a win in 2019. No, no, yeah, that's, that's right, because every team pre-arbitrage, like every player, like free, free agency has their value very depressed. If you're looking at the price per win in free agency, it's between eight and nine I, I million the last few years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, because of that, like, I think, you know, obviously th this price goes down, you know, for later seasons, cause you're paying for the decline. And that's why like Mike Trout's not getting paid like $80 million a year. But when you're only signing a single year contract, I think you would expect Stroman to get something like in the 25 to $30 million range. I think it's reasonable. No, Gaussman no, 25 to $30 million. You're out of your mind. For a single year, I, I, you're out of your mind. He's not a twenty-five to thirty million dollar a year pitcher. For for one year, you, no, like when you no, sign up for no other reason, Sam. If for no other reason, the fact that he has not been fully healthy for two consecutive full seasons since two thousand and sixteen, he is not a thirty million dollar a year guy. That's crazy. I, I twenty-five, I think, is is totally reasonable. Maybe not in the depressed market, but like in an, it, it, if you take away the the COVID depressed market, I think. He easily gets $25 million if it's, an, if it's an open market for one year. There's no way he or Gaussman gets more than $19 million on the open market. But I understand that we're going to agree to disagree, so we'll leave it right there. <laughs> so I Look, Stroman is a good pitcher. I also think that this is a decent deal for the Mets, um, especially with Steve Cohen, who is ready to throw that cash around. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, let's talk about Gaussman for a second. The Giants don't have a ton of money. Um, but they did think that they unlocked Gaussman last year. So I don't believe that they're paying for the Kevin Gaussman they got last year, although he was fine. You know, he was pretty good. I think they're paying for the Kevin Gossman that everybody has believed will show up since he was a pitching prospect for the Braves. You know, last year he had a, a, a 3.6 ERA with a 3.09 FIP and a 3.06 XFIP, so he was expected to be quite good. He amassed a war and a half, which was on pace to be his best ever um, in 59 and two-thirds innings. And, you know, he effectively kept the ball in the yard with a reasonable Babbitt. He, he had a relatively good season, but what you saw out of him was he unlocked that slider. He unlocked that changeup that he has been throwing for so long, but not locating. And subsequently, his fastball, which is good and has good ride, has been getting eaten by hitters when they don't expect to see off-speed in the zone. He finally found a way to do that. Um, and if the Giants get this type of production again, it's a decent deal. It's probably close to a two million over market value, in my opinion, similar to Stroman. If he's the same pitcher he was last year, again, I think that pitcher on the open market is getting something like twenty-five million dollars. Okay. I think you're just. I think you're. I think you're undervaluing how much people get in a single year. Yeah, I could be totally wrong, but I do not think the market, the free agent market, will be the same this year. We'll talk about this when it concludes, but. 
the teams that's, that's fair. The teams are struggling for cash. I do not believe they're going to shell that type of money out on the open market this year. Um, because don't forget, owners collude. Like we talked about this when we started. Owners have their own way of doing things, whether it's technical collusion or not. Um, I don't think the money's coming. But Kevin Gosman's good. We'll have to see what he does. I have drafted him enough years in a row to be weary of his <laughs> performance. Um, but he could theoretically be a good player. So let's talk about some guys. Oh, before we do, let's talk about my all-time least favorite signing. The Braves signed Drew Smiley for $11 million. Why? Why? You need a left-hander to come up and give a home runs up in the sixth and seventh innings of your blowout ball games this year? Braves, you have a good team. You're going to bring in one of the worst starting pitchers in baseball over the last five years onto your team. Why? Why? Worst starting pitcher? He's, he's been a, a, you know, a, a decent fourth or fifth starter for, for much of his career. In 26 innings this year, he had a, a two fifth and a two fifty six x fifth. You're striking out 14 batters for nine. It was 26 innings. Oh, in 26 innings, he had a 3.42 ERA. The year before, he amassed a 6.24 ERA in 114 innings. The year before that, he amassed a 4.88 ERA in 175 innings. And he only played one other full season. He has four seasons behind that. All of them, he got injured. This is a guy who cannot stay on the hill. When he is on the hill, he gets absolutely shredded by home runs. And let's be honest, he came into the league with some pretty good stuff, but he has nothing. His fastball doesn't ride anymore. His slider has good sweep to it, but it's the only pitch he's got. What are you going to do as the lefty with only a slider? By far, hands down, the worst signing I've seen, and I include the honest trade. <laughs> I mean, last year, like, Rick Porcello got, like, one year, $10 million. Like, I, I don't see them as that different in this season. No, but Rick Porcello had a legitimate chance to go out and pitch 210 innings in a full season this year. He had a real chance. Yeah, no matter enough. what he, no matter what ERA he put up, that is a value that exists on the open market that Drew Smiley Drew Smiley has no distinct value. You're better off bringing up one of your younger arms, especially the Braves. I don't want Drew Smiley as a lefty starting more games than Bryce Wilson next year. Yeah, I mean, I it, it definitely seemed like a lot to me, but I guess the Braves are just trying to compile pitching depth because that's sort of the team's one weakness right now. Uh, in that vein, they also uh, re-signed Josh Tomlin to a one-year, I think it was like, you know, one and a half million dollar contract. So you guys a much smaller know how I feel about there. Josh Tomlin. Look, if Alex Anthopoulos needs me to come down there and take his spot over, I'm happy to. Because I'm not saying I could win a World Series, but I sure as hell could put us in a better position to win a World Series, Atlanteans. Um, all right, let's, let's make some predictions for the top free agents on the market. I think the number one guy on the market right now is JT Real Muto, Sam. Where do you see him? Yeah. I... Uh... I'm going to be given the same answer a lot, but I think he'll be uh, on the New York Mets. This is the only time I'll agree with you. The Mets looked at him coming out of uh, the Marlins camp. 
They have Steve Cohen now. Catcher is such a glaring weakness for them. No matter who they stick back there, he doesn't do well until he goes to some other team, and then he does great. Travis Darno, you're my boy. Um, Wilson Ramos is definitely not the answer from both perspectives. They are one of the worst teams in baseball controlling the run, and they get no offense out of their catcher. This makes a lot of sense for both sides, and if Steve's willing to pay, I think this is the best move they could make, and I think yeah. it's the best spot for Real Muto. And I'll note that the catcher position is really at its weakest in as long as I can remember in the major yeah. leagues. There are just not many good catchers right now. Honestly, outside of Real Muto and Grandal, like there's barely anyone I would say was that good. And if you well, miss Salvador, out on Real, Salvador Perez was a very good hitter again last year. Salvador yeah, Perez that... is a tremendous offensive player. I'm not sure I'd go as far as tremendous, but what you, you know, what for are a catcher, you about? Salvador decent. Perez has been the best or second best hitting catcher in baseball almost every year he's been in the league. I mean, what's his his career WRC plus is 99. Yeah, but you're t- yeah okay fine. But yeah, yeah his it, WAR numbers are are so much worse than I expected to see. To be honest. But you watch him hit, and the fact of the matter is, like, 21, 22, 27, 27 home runs for four years in a row, he driving in 70 to 80 runs. The problem is he's walking yeah, probably, at a 2% yeah. clip, and he's staying at a 15 to 20% clip, and his defense Which is good. that yeah. good. He's a good contact hitter and, you know, puts the ball in play, but he just cannot, you know, take a walk. Uh, but I guess the point Fine. I was trying I to make – I guess the point I was trying to make, though, is if you miss on Real Muto, maybe, like, the next best guy on the market is, like, Yachty? Like, no, it's, it might even... it's James McCann. Oh, yeah, okay. It's James McCann. But then after that, it's Yachty. But Yachty's going, Wilson... going back to the Cardinals. Yachty will be yeah. a Cardinal it, for life. It, it might even be that Wilson Ramos, like, taking Wilson Ramos is again is your best option. It's, right. like, it's really dire pickings after Real Muto. And, right. I agree. You know... If you talk about, you know, who are the best players, like, as a free agent, like, hands down, like, irrespective of, of position, I wouldn't say it's Real Muto, but I'd say because of the current positional scarcity of catchers in, in the league, like, Real Muto is the most valuable free agent to get right now. So, let's move on here. We both agree that the Mets are the most likely landing spot there. Let's talk about Trevor Bauer. I could see Trevor Bauer in kind of a lot of places. I mean, certainly I could see him ending up in Queens, um, but I also could see him ending up in Dodger Blue. I could see him ending up in San Francisco if they really think they can go for it. I could see him making a trip over to the American League again. Um, Where do you think he could go the angels the yankees the dodgers the mets there's there's a lot of places here although i only named four cities in two states yeah i mean i think bauer's a guy who is very eccentric we talked about this and we had ben Lindbergh on the podcast he really likes to do things his own way so i think he's going to prioritize going to an organization that's going to allow him to do that when i think about organizations that might be like that i definitely include the dodgers uh, I might include the Yankees in that they're very analytically inclined, but they also are very buggins up and sort of, you know, for the team, no individual. So, so, so I don't know how well he'd fit in there. 
he's he's openly praised you know Steve Cohen in the last few days, saying he really respected uh, you know Steve Cohen's opening press conference. He made a a 15 minute YouTube video talking about how impressed he was with Steve Cohen's opening press conference. So I definitely uh, think consider the, mess- the source, Sam. That doesn't say much. I'll make a 15 minute YouTube video about a guy he met at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> that that's true. He's making a lot of YouTube videos. I think the Mets are a possibility, but I I really agree. I could I wouldn't be surprised to see him end up a lot of different places, including the Angels, including the Dodgers, uh, including the Giants. Whereas Romuto, I really think it's going to be like the Mets or Phillies. Yeah, I I agree. So yeah. let me point out about Bauer before we move on that we talked about Bauer coming into the season. And you and I had a bit of a disagreement about what type of pitcher he was. I thought that he was, you know, a much better pitcher than he was in 2019, closer to his skills in 2018. You said he has a huge body of work, that he's not that good. And I just want to say. Did I say that? You did. And and I'm not convinced, though. I'm actually saying that. I'm not convinced that these 73 innings are enough to say he definitely is a star. I think that, you know, we can agree that he has the ability to be one of the best pitchers in baseball in any given year, but there's a lot of variability here. And I think teams should factor that in. You're not certain. You're certain that you're getting a workhorse. You're certain that you're getting a guy who's throwing 170 innings. You're certain you're getting a guy who can go and compete on any given day. So in no scenario are you getting a dog, but you're not necessarily getting Cy Young material if you sign Trevor Bauer for five years. Um, You're maybe getting a year or two, at best three. Um, So... I think that that's worth considering. It's not like getting a Steven Strasburg, a, a Scherzer, a DeGrom, some guy who's a Garrett Cole, who's just the cream of the crop. This is a guy who has question marks still because of his body of work. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I don't think I, you know, I would treat him as like a top 10 pitcher quite yet as I would with those other guys. But I'll note similar to Real Muto, like not quite as big of a drop down as with Real Muto, but once you once you get past Bauer, I think the other guys on the market carry much bigger question marks. This includes Tanaka, Charlie Morton, Corey Kluber, James Paxton, Mike Miner. Like those are the next few guys on the pitching market. And, you know, Tanaka, you know, all of them could definitely be good, have have, have histories of being good, but they all come with major either age or injury question marks. So, I do think there's a major step down from Bauer to the next best pitcher on the market. He's certainly the best on the market. And and let me just speed read through a few of these because we're running out of time here. Other guys we have, but that we're not going to talk about. We're going to talk about Springer and Lindor, and then we're going to talk about Hall of Fame. But a couple other guys that are on this list, Marcelo Zuna, um, who could go to any number of places, Jay LeMahieu, Nelson Cruz, Cesar Hernandez, Rick Porcello, James McCann, Bradley Jr., Gregorius, Scope, Hendricks, Wong, Brantley, Profar, Justin Turner for the Dodgers, Robbie Grossman, Lucello, Marcus Simeon, who I wish we could talk about, but we don't have time. Maybe we'll get back to him. He's an interesting one. He is arguably the fourth most sought-after free agent here. Brad Hand, Kevin Pillar, Adam Wainwright, Drew Smiley, Morton, Miner, Moreland, Tanaka, Miller, Clifford, Rosenthal, Holland, Rich Hill, Garrett Richards, Mike Fires, Taiwan Walker. 
Um, and this goes all the way down. The other one guy who I'll say a quick piece about is keep your eyes on Rosny Castillo, especially if you play fantasy. This is a guy who had um, all the talent in the world. The Red Sox can find him to AAA for contract purposes. And there is a chance that he will sign with a team next year. I'm thinking Marlins. I'm thinking Giants. I'm thinking some team with no offense where he could hit three, four, or five, two, three, four, or five, um, and could surprise a lot of people with his skills. So keep an eye on him. That said, let's talk about George Springer, the Astros outfielder who has been a part of multiple World Series runs. Um, he sits right now as rejecting his $18.9 million qualifying offer. He uh, had almost two war last year and is projected for four war in 2021. Sam, to me, this is a guy who I would pay almost an unlimited amount of money for a four-year deal. But he's going to be looking for seven to eight, and you're going to get burned on the back end because I think he's only got four to five good ones left. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you just talk about, you know, regardless of position, who's the best player on the market, I think it might be George Springer. Um, my prediction for where he ends up is I think he's going to end up back on the Astros. I think there's a shot the Mets, he could end up on the Mets. I think the uh, Braves are other... an outside chance to land him. If the Braves lose Marcelo yeah. Zuna, they could go after him and they could get him. Man, they'd be good. Um, really good. Yeah, so I think there there are going to be a few teams in play for him, but my guess is that he's going to end up back on the Astros. I I think that that's a pretty safe assumption, Sam. Um, but you know, just some other teams that are looking at them, Mets are looking at him, Blue Jays are looking at him, um, and the Astros have shown some some indications that he may not go back Chicago, both sides of Chicago are also looking at him. So we'll have to see what happens there. Let's talk about a guy who's not a free agent, but looks almost certain to get dealt in Francisco Lindor for the Indians, Sam. This is a top 10 dynasty style franchise cornerstone player in baseball. No question, potentially top five but he's only got one year on his contract. Based on what we saw from Mookie Betts last year, what do you expect the Indians could receive for Francisco Lindor? Yeah, so with Mookie Betts, it, the return was basically Jeter Downs, which was sort of like a top, you know, bottom of the top 50 prospects in baseball, and Alex Verdugo, who is not so far removed from being, you know, a top prospect, but was probably a type of guy who you could see being like an average major league outfielder going forward. Um, so that's not all that much. Uh, and Mookie Betts is definitely was better than Lindor. Uh, so I think the team that trades for him is definitely going to be looking for like the ability to sign a contract extension as well with the trade. And I think whether or not that can be negotiated will affect a lot of what the Indians get in return. So if Lindor is not willing to sign a contract extension with a team he's traded, he trades, he's traded to, which was sort of the position that Mookie Betts was posturing, mm -hmm. then that's going to deflate his value, but the ability to get Francisco Lindor on in your franchise for, you know, the next six to seven years. I mean, that's something that every team in baseball should be jumping at. It's crazy that the Indians aren't, um, but like he's, he's easily the best guy we've talked about. With that said, Sam, a couple teams that I could see trading for him who have both the depth and the money, the Mets are a possibility, but I'm not sure they have the depth. The Indians are, maybe going to be a little bit more tight purse than the Red Sox were. 
I think the Blue Jays could make a deal for him and, and would be willing to go after him right now with the young core they're building. I think the Phillies um, could go for him and, and could replace Real Muto to an extent with him. Um, and then I honestly, I know it's crazy. I think the Yankees could go for him. Um, the Yankees would be devastating to me because I don't understand how they can get better every single year. Um, but the Yankees could go for him. They could still keep LeMahieu. Um, they could get rid of Gary Sanchez, who it looks like they're ready to deal, and they could improve their team drastically. To me, what, that's what, the what, most likely fit. What sort of package are we seeing out of the Yankees then? Do you think it's like Andujar, Clint Frazier? I think it's one of uh, those two and maybe Estevez. Um, I don't think they're giving up uh, – J-Rod, who is one of their very young but, like, very, very good prospects. I think you could see them giving up uh, maybe even someone like Debbie Garcia, Estevan Florial. Um, Glaber is definitely not on the table. Glaber's not on the table. He's an important part of that. Maybe Luis Medina. Um, somebody, you know, the Indians love pitching. Um, and they think that they'll get their hitting as- elsewhere. So I could see them taking Debbie Garcia or Luis Medina, who comes to them in a better position than many of these other pitchers have um, in the past and turning him into something good. I could also see them trying to pry away Esteban Florial, um, who's one of their top outfield prospects and, and by all accounts, quite a good player. Um, and uh, the Yankees certainly have the depth to get the job done. Uh, the question is, do they have the will to do so? Because they're in a precarious place, uh, and they need to be careful how they move. So we'll see what they do. Yeah, and I also get the sense that the Yankees aren't super amped to spend, which is a bit different exactly, than, we've, exactly. than we've seen out of them in, in recent years. Uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on in MLB free agency, and we're definitely going to be talking a lot more about it as some of these guys start signing. So, like, as these guys sign, we're definitely going to be doing, like, deep dives on these players, talking about what we can expect out of them. So don't don't be sad that we're moving on now. You're definitely going to hear more about MLB. Absolutely. But with that, let's move to the Hall of Fame ballot. And, and Sam, how do you want to do this? I was thinking maybe we'd both read off our list of 10 and then we'd go through some of the ones that we didn't agree about. Yeah, I think that sounds good. Uh, do you want to go first? Sure. So in no particular order, I have Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Bobby Abreu, Todd Helton, Andrew Jones, Scott Rowland, Kurt Schilling, Billy Wagner, Manny Ramirez, and I have Andy Pettit, but I could entertain Jeff Kent. And I'll actually say now that that's not no particular order. Um, That's pretty close with a couple exceptions to the order that I would vote them in. Sorry, and how many guys was that? 10. That was 10. It's actually 11 if I include the Jeff Kent, Andy Pettit. Combo. Okay. And, and let's say, let's say you're allowed to vote for as many guys as you want. Then you're including Jeff Kent and Andy Pettit. Yes. I would vote for the vote, but okay. you only get 10 for people who know accredited baseball writers get 10 votes for the hall of fame. And we'll note that, that uh, about 10 guys were added to the ballot this year. You did not vote for any of them no, um, because it's a, not a great class. Yeah, and I think maybe the, the best guy in the class is Mark Burley, who was sort of, uh, I think he'd be in the hall of the very good, a really nice long career, but I think was never quite, I don't think he was ever a top 10 pitcher in baseball. And I, I have trouble voting for someone into the hall of fame off of like longevity if they were never like top 10 at their 
but you know, Sam, I, I did mention I did mention this to you before the show, and I do want to point out to folks that the the Hall of Fame is changing because we understand statistics better. So, Mark Burley's career WAR in a similar in a similar number of innings pitched, only comparing him to pitchers with similar numbers of innings pitched. Um, Red Ruffing, Whitey Ford, Sandy Koufax. Oh well, Sandy had much fewer innings pitched. Early win, yeah. Hoyt Wilhelm, Dizzy Dean. Jack Morris, Lefty Gomez, Bob Lemon, and Catfish Hunter are all guys who he has higher than or close to equal wars with who pitch a similar number of innings and guys who we regard as very good pitchers. So I agree with you. He's not on my list of 10, but I do want to point out that he's the weakest player or he's the best player on this, um, on this ballot of new players, but he is by no means a lock for the Hall of Fame. And I do think he more closely aligns with the Hall of Very Good. Yeah, okay, and, and I think I'm a bit more selective when it comes to who I'm willing to put in the Hall of Fame. I only I only voted for seven of the seven of the guys on the ballot this year, so I would I'm not voting, but if I did have a vote, I would not be using all ten of my votes. Here are the seven guys I would vote for. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. Obviously it's a it's a sham if they don't end up in the Hall of Fame. I would vote for Kurt Schilling on the basis of his career as a pitcher. I am swayed by the arguments of people who say they don't want to vote for him because of what a terrible human being he is. I personally don't want to take those things into consideration when it comes to my Hall of Fame vote. But if you do, all the power to you. Ty Cobb murdered his father and is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah. You know, if if, if that does matter to you, I'm not going to argue with you. All the power to you. I think that's totally legitimate. I would still vote for him. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I think Scott Rowland definitely deserves to be in there. Uh, and then the other three I voted for are Manny Ramirez, Andrew Jones, and Andy Pettit. Um, okay. So, so let's just let's just do a quick accounting for who are the guys that I did not vote for that you voted for. Todd Helton. Okay. Billy Wagner. Okay. Bobby Abreu. Okay. Jeff Kent. Okay. And so you also left Omar Vizquel off your ballot. Correct. So who is, who is actually, if, if you look at, if you look at how close these guys were to getting elected recently, the guys who really were close last year in that you have to get 75% of the vote to get elected. Kurt Schilling had 70, uh, Clemens 61, Bond 60.7. I don't know who's voting for Clemens, but not voting for Bond. I know. I know. Uh, Omar Omar Vizquel at 52.6. And if you look at sort of his trend, usually if you're at above 50 by your fourth year, you're probably going to get there. Uh, Clemens, Bonds, and Schilling all in their ninth year. So they'll, this is their second to last year on the ballot. So let's just kind of ignore Jeff Kent for a second because I could go either way on him. And I think you probably agree with me that the argument's pretty clear. He's the most prolific offensive second baseman of all time, but he was bad in the field and he wasn't even that great at second base because it's a historically weak position. He hurt his team in the clubhouse. Um, I, I, I could very easily leave him off, but I do want to talk about a couple of his other guys. I thought you were going to leave Andrew Jones off there. So I appreciate that you didn't, but for you not to include Todd Helton is absolutely criminal. And he's honestly, it's reprehensible that you would fall prey to the Coors Field 
semi-fallacy. Now, no doubt that Coors Field is advantageous to hitters. But Todd Helton had WRC pluses in consecutive years of 162 and 160. He then had a huge down year of 141, but went 163, 166 after that. This is a guy in Sam Saskin who was just telling me how he doesn't vote for guys who can't sustain periods of great play. That is essentially eight seasons of tremendous play consecutively. 8.3 war, 7.1 war, 7 war, 6.6 war, 5.5 war, 4.9 war. This is a guy who was very, very, very good. Top of his class ended with almost 55 war, a 132 WRC plus. And I get that course field played a factor, but those are both field adjusted. And it's a no-brainer to me. If Scott Rowland's getting in, this guy's getting in, even though Scott Rowland has roughly 13 points, 12 points higher war. Uh, I'm not going to fault you for voting for Todd Helton. He's was my next guy on, and I and I waffled over whether or not to vote for him. Okay. But, okay. you know, here here's here's my argument why I wouldn't. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying if, you're, if you played at cores, you don't get in. Larry Walker, I thought, was a surefire Hall of Famer, and it's crazy it took him that long to get in. Agreed. But Larry Walker did what he did at Coors, the offensive output, and while being a good outfielder. Todd Helton was a first baseman. So, like, you know, he also did this in sort of the era of insane offensive output from a lot of players. So I think you need to adjust the performance per era. And, like, yes, WRC Plus is adjusted for offensive performance. And when you talk about this six-year peak he had, yeah, it's an incredibly impressive six-year peak. It's an incredibly impressive, you know, seven-year peak if you want to call it but the decline years were really bad and I think that's often the difference between guys who I think deserve to be in the hall because there are a lot of guys who have like really great six to seven year peaks I mean I think if you're if you want to put Todd Helton in the hall then you have to start talking about putting guys like Carlos Beltran in the hall David Wright in the hall when he retires but you know it's not enough to be that good from the age of 24 to 30 I think you need to decline somewhat gracefully and Todd Helton failed to do that. Now, Andrew Jones, also a guy who sort of failed to decline that gracefully, but his his year, his peak, I thought was even better than, than Todd okay. Helton's. I, I agree, because he was the best so, hitter so for baseball, and he was a top five yeah. hitter in baseball for four years in a row. That, that's really so that, that's, that's where I differ from you, and I, you know, I'm very selective with who I think should get into the baseball hall. So it could just be... A difference of opinion from that perspective uh and i certainly don't fault the todd helton vote i'm not going to say todd helton doesn't deserve to be in the hall i i waffled on him but that's why i ended up as a no vote okay so let me talk about a guy who i actually am most passionate about on this ballot for being underrepresented and that's billy wagner so i get that billy wagner only has 24 career war i get that in his career he has 422 saves which is good but not outstanding his ERA is 231, his FIP is 273, his XFIP is 276. He was the closer of the 2000s. From 2000 to 2010, he was absolutely the guy, and I think this is a situation where his, his distinction speak louder than his cumulative statistics. Billy Wagner is the only pitcher in MLB history with more strikeouts than total bases. For at least one thousand, for at least one thousand Ks, I think that's incredibly impressive. He is the only pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball to have multiple seasons of seventy or more games 
180 ERA or better, and less than a .9 whip. He had three seasons like that. He was one of three left-handed pitchers with more than 100 Ks and less than a two ERA in the live ball era, joining Clayton Kershaw, Roldis Chapman, and Sandy Koufax. He is... He was more dominant than any closer in his time besides Mariano Rivera. And I think that he deserves to be in as a recognition of the pinnacle of the 2000s closer, which we may never see again. We historically didn't see in the past. It was kind of a construct for maybe 20 years from 1990 to 2010 where you had a one-inning guy who just closed games out. I know that they call that the traditional closer, but it's not really traditional, right? In the 70s and 80s, they threw guys for three innings. It was no big deal. He is the archetype outside of Mariano Rivera, and I think he deserves it. You know what? I, I think you won me over on Billy Wagner. Yes! Um, one, one convert. Because, you know, I, I guess I also waffled a little on Billy Wagner and at the end of the day, I, I was like, you know what? He was a reliever. The only reliever I'm okay with having in there is basically Mariano. Um, but, you know, if you're going to put Trevor Hoffman in and put Lee Smith in, I, I, you know, I don't see why you shouldn't put Billy Wagner in as well. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll get in on him. Let me see if I can give it to you one more guy before we hang up here, Sam. I know we're running long, but folks, this is an exciting episode for us. Bobby Abreu. Okay, I know he's, uh, I know he can be a polarizing figure, and I know that his tenure in the Mets in 2014 was ugly. But this is a guy with 60 career war, putting him about nine and a half below Scott Rowland. Um, but who had a 130 WRC plus putting him precisely in line with Scott Rowland. And I just want to read out something courtesy of uh, Jeremy Frank at MLB Random Stats on Twitter here. Um, Bobby Abreu, 3,979 times on base, 921 extra base hits, 400 stolen bases in 2,425 career games. Okay. Tony Gwynn, 3,955 3, times on base. That's 24 less than Bobby Abreu. 763 extra base hits. That's almost 260 less than Bobby Abreu. 319 stolen bases. That's precisely uh, 81 less than Bobby Abreu. And 2,440 in 2,440 career games, that's 15 more than Bobby Abreu. 25 more than Bobby Abreu. Um, does that tell me that Bobby Abreu was a better player than Tony Gwynn? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it frames the type of player that Bobby Abreu was in the proper light. It shows you he was a guy who got on base a ton as evidenced by a career um, OBP of 395 and stole some bases, 400 career stolen bases, but also slammed the ball uh, for 921 extra base hits. And his 475 career slugging percentage doesn't reflect that so much. And if he was playing today, you know, maybe I'd feel a little differently, which speaks to your point of leaving him off. But I don't know. I think that there's a lot of guys who've gotten in very recently who have had worse careers than him. Um, or or slightly better careers than him, I think Tony Gwynn and Andre Dawson are two good examples. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make this a litigation of, of, of past uh, Hall of Fame guys. 
I think I, I view Abreu in a very similar light to how I view Todd Hilton. And that's both of them in, in the hall of the very, very, very good, where, yes, Abreu was a tremendous hitter for, for many years. Specifically, his peak from 98 to 2004 was especially impressive, sort of at the five to six war threshold every year. But again, for me, it's got to be a combination of, you know, either, you know, getting to 65 or 78 career war based off longevity, or if you're going to be in that 55 to 60 war career category, the peak has to really be that you were a top five MVP level player. And, you know, Bobby Abreu, I don't think ever quite reached that level. He was, you know, definitely one of the best hitters in the league for many years, but not quite at the, you know, at the MVP level that I want to see that at your peak to overcome when I'm sort of judging these more borderline career, you know, level cases. Yeah, he never finished higher than 14 in MVP voting. Yeah, so I mean, that's, and and maybe, you know, and that's probably likely due to people highly undervaluing his skill in terms of getting on base, you know, when this MVP voting was occurring. So like, Bobby Abreu is probably a guy who evaluating by current standards were probably view as better than he was today. Um, And, 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 you know, yeah, I I guess I would, yeah, I would just barely leave Bobby Abreu off sort of in a similar way to, to, uh, to, to, um, um, like Todd Helton. Todd Helton. Well, I, I, Uh, I, I, and also, and I guess I'll say it this way is that if you start putting in Todd Helton and Bobby Abreu, it's not particularly clear to me why you're leaving off like Sammy Sosa and Gary Sheffield. Um, unless yeah. it's like a steroids thing. No, no, no. It, you know how I feel about steroids. I will I will just say before we wrap up here, I heard someone on the radio the other day saying that you should let Bonds and Clemens and Sosa and all the steroid guys in because there's always been cheating in baseball. Um, in Babe Ruth's era, they didn't play the Negro League pitchers, so they weren't playing the best competition. And in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they were throwing spitballs and, and all these other things. That's the wrong argument. You let Clemens and Bonds in because everybody in the late 90s and early 2000s was doing steroids, and they dominated the steroid era more than any other players by a long, long margin. So if you want to leave out borderline guys like Gary Sheffield and Sammy Sosa, and you're also going to leave out the guys that we mentioned earlier, that's fine. But even if you leave those guys out, you have to let Bonds and Clemens in. They're two of the most dominant players in MLB history. And even if you want to put an asterisk on their plaque, I don't care. To leave them out of the Hall of Fame is ignorant and stupid. It's just totally disregarding what happened in the history of baseball. And they're also guys who had Hall of Fame level careers before they ever injected a single steroid into their body. Well, we're, or at least we're on pace for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bonds definitely. I think Bonds was at like 80 career war before he Correct. even went to the Giants. Correct. Yeah. Um, um, all right. Well, with that, folks, thank you very much for joining us. I'm sorry we ran late, but I hope you enjoyed catching up on the National Basketball Association as well as the hottest news in Major League Baseball. Um, Sam and I have cast our ballots officially on this podcast. No one cares, but we are glad to contribute to the dialogue. Um, if you guys have questions for us, if you want to hear us cover a topic, if you just want to chat, reach out to us, Twitter at the Alonzo bet or Gmail, 
thealonzobet at gmail.com. We read our emails. We read our DMs. So please find us there. Um, and with that, thank you all very much for coming. It's been a wonderful night here. We're your hosts at the Alonso Bet. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. Have a good night, folks.